God's word to us this morning begins in Genesis chapter 28. Verses 10 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob had made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then Yahweh will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that thou dost give me I will surely give a tenth to thee. We'll now turn to the New Testament in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle." And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I've been alerted to the fact that there is increased drowsiness due to the restrictions of coffee in the sanctuary. If that describes you, this psalm speaks to you today. <laughs> Lift up your heads. One of my practices in, in going through the psalms is whenever I'm studying a specific psalm, I, uh, I listen to all of the... Uh, all of the musical settings that I can find. So I'm not going to advertise a service for you. But there's quite a few. You can, you can find usually between 10 and 30 renditions of a given psalm. And uh, I always find it interesting. Some of them are quite horrible. And, uh, and some are good. A musical setting describes how, how the music interprets the words. So you start with the words and then the music is added, and you'll notice if you do this that the music does interpret what's said for you because it, it changes how you think about it, the, the visions that you see in your mind. So I'm going to recommend one surprising musical setting for Psalm 24 that comes from another local large megachurch. So Preston Wood Choir sings a version of Psalm 24 that I would recommend as your homework, go listen to it. So today, obviously, we're, we're covering the 24th psalm. This is the end of this series of psalms. So remember that Psalm 24 is the matched bookend to Psalm 15. Uh, and, and it forms that chiastic structure which reaches its zenith at Psalm 19. And so we're coming then, we're coming then to the conclusion and beginning to answer some of the questions that, that were 
probed at the beginning of this section, but all the way back to Psalm 1 and 2. Remember, Psalm 1 begins, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the council, and does not sit in the seat, does not, sorry, does not stand in the path, does not sit in the seat. And so at the end of this, this psalm, you realize that there is a man of blessing who will stand in the assembly of the righteous. He won't stand amongst the wicked, but he will stand in, in the assembly of the righteous before the judgment of God. And so there's this implied question, who is this man? Who are these men, if indeed there are many? And then Psalm 2, of course, we know well, God has anointed, has, has put his anointed son, he ascends to Mount Zion, and so again, there's this implied question, who is the anointed son? When is he coming? Where is he coming? And how, how does he arrive? And the intervening psalms that we did not study this psalm this time, so Psalms 3 through 14, they discuss some of the antagonists that you find in King David's life. So there's a setting there where you see uh, adversaries both from without and within. Within his own house, his son Absalom attacks him. He, he has multiple sons that are set against him. From without, you see the enemies surrounding him on all sides. And it's a fulfillment then of Psalm 2, the nation's rage. All around, the kings are taking their stand against God and his anointed, and we see the fullness of that in Christ. And it, it grows. The, the, the surprising nature of the story of David is that wickedness grows in his own house, so that by the time you reach Psalm 10 through 14, it, it grows, and you ask this question, if, if none has do, done good, if there's none righteous, then how can there be an answer to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? Who can the man be? If indeed, it, if indeed it's not David, if he's not the righteous man, if he's not the anointed king, who is it? And so Psalm 15 asks that question, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who, who can stand in his presence? Who can stand under the judgment of the Lord in the assembly of the righteous? Who is that man? And Psalm 24 asks the same question. So there's a structure to Psalm 24. In fact, there's multiple structures that overlap in the 24th Psalm. Typically, it will be divided into three sections. So verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and verses 7 through 10. You can also, as denoted by the Selahs in Psalm 24, divide it into two sections. And so there's a break that God gives us to pause and reflect. Poetically, you can find it divided into those two sections as two strophes. Thematically, you can find it divided into the aforementioned three parts of verses 1 and 2, 3 through 6, and 7 through 10. So with that, we've said it. Now hear, hear this song. A psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. The world, those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, he has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. If you would, pray with me.
Lord, we confess that it's only by grace that you have called us into your presence and that you've made us clean to stand before you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your powerful word, that incarnate word, the King of glory who's come for us. Help us to hear, to be awestruck by your majesty, to bow before you and come in after our Savior. Help us to lift up our heads as you command us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I said, uh, thematically, there's this division that occurs in Psalm 24, and uh, what you can see, you can see it in, in multiple different perspectives. And I, just, just as a side note, one of the things we, we struggle with is when we look at Scripture, we tend to look, with, uh, look for perspective. And if you're an artist, you, you, you'll have heard these words, there's, there's perspective and there's aspective views. So you can look, uh, you can look at the relationship between in a, in a scene. So if you're, if I'm looking out at you, I see left, middle, right. That's a perspective. And and you can look at those relationships in all sorts of different axes. If you're an engineer, you'll know that there's more there's more than one dimension. So w- with our eyes, when we paint and see, we, we see we see the three dimensions, but we can only describe them as two. And so we're, we're taking a slice, whether, whether that's in time or in space, and, and looking and trying to describe what's in front of us. An aspective view looks at, it looks at the item and describes an aspect of it. So you can, you can think as you, as you climb a, a mountain, your perspective changes, but you also look at different aspects of, of the item you're looking at. And sometimes we, we, we struggle with those two things because the psalms seem to jump around, and so understanding the relationship between the, the sections is difficult for us because we're, we're trying to look at it in one direction and not the other. In this particular case, in Psalm 24, he, he does both. So we, we see some answers to a central question, and he gives it to us in, in multiple dimensions. So the, the sections, you can look in verses 1 through 2, and you can look spatially. There's a relationship that occurs as you move through the psalm. The earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So you, you, you take a step back, and the subject matter, the space in which the, the song begins, is all of God's creation. It belongs to him, and this, this is important to the subject of the psalm. And then as you move forward, we move forward with the question, who can move further into God's space? It's all God's space, but who can ascend into the hill of Yahweh? And so you're moving closer then to God, and who is allowed to do that? And then finally, at the end of the psalm, in verses 7 through 10, we have a, 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 new, a new question, but we've arrived then at the gates, and we should be thinking here of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, who can come in? Who is the king of glory that's knocking at the door? And so you, you see this spatial relationship between what, what, what the psalmist has described, but there's also a temporal relationship. So if you step back and you think about verses 1 through 2, the earth is Yahweh's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it, and there's a reason why. Why is it his? Why is the fullness thereof his? It's his because he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. So the earth and its fullness belongs to God because he made it, because he lifted it up out of the seas. So you, you should be thinking of Genesis 1, 1. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the surface of the darkness of the deep, 
and then God spoke. And so God in creation past owns all that we see. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills because he made them. He lifted the earth out of its seas. He established the world on, on the back of rivers, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But then as you move forward in history, then we have this question. Because in, in Genesis 1, we don't have the question, who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? But in Genesis 4, we very much have the question, who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who can come with a sacrifice up to the very gate of God, Cain or Abel? There's an implied question there. And so you're moving forward through history in present tense, then throughout Scripture, we're asking this question, who can ascend the hill of Yahweh? And as you move forward then to the end, there's this temporal sequence where you get the answer, the king of glory has come. The one who is Yahweh of hosts is knocking at the doors, and so we see the fullness of the future. And we're going to look at this then in multiple settings, hopefully, uh, or I'll run out of time, one or the other. And I, I think they'll, uh, at least they help me gain a fuller picture of what God is doing. One of, one of the interesting things about the, the Psalms is uh, a few of them have historical situations attached to them for us. Most of them don't. And so there are these songs that have been written, many of them by David, and we can go back in his life and, and attempt to say, all right, what, what setting did he write this for? What, what were his thoughts? What, what colors the language behind this song? But in some sense, God intends for us to think about them much more broadly. And so we've been doing that in Psalm 15 through 24, recognizing that Jesus ultimately is the singer. So he's the choir leader, and he sings each of these psalms. And so they all are fulfilled in him and then later fulfilled in us, but they all have their roots in, in, in David and history too. So as you move across that temporal sequence, you, you can see the sweep of what God has doing and the reverberations of how this psalm is fulfilled. In each case, this it, it describes for us an, an entrance, God coming into his own house. And it's surprising, it should be surprising, it's, it's somewhat normal to us to think about this, but to think that God has left his house and God is both inside the house and coming into the house at the same time as the king of glory. And the, the why behind it all has to do with the middle section of those who are seeking his face, the, the Jacob. So all the way from the beginning, then the central question, who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? And remember, that began for us in Psalm 15, and we see it again. Who can ascend this hill? And the surprise is that God will not dwell in his house alone. So he does not, in the end, rest until he's brought his true worshipers, his true Jacob, into the house with him. And that's the wonder of what God has done. Across creation, the all-sufficient God has chosen in love to pursue his bride, his Jacob, his son, and all these different metaphors until he brings him with him. And that's what we're going to see, see then as we, as we think through this psalm. So, the first setting we'll think about then is the, the older setting. So we, we think about David, and there's, there's multiple ways David can, can have written this psalm. But the one I, I would draw your attention to then is, is 
Second uh, Samuel 5 and 6. We're not going to turn there. I'll just tell you the story, help you remember where that's at in God's Word. But the Ark of the Covenant is coming back. And in Second Samuel 5, uh, they're, they're bringing it back, but they do it incorrectly. So Uzzah dies because he's lifting up the Ark onto the back of the, a cart. And then it's sent back, and it's, it resides in the house of Obed-Edom, which translated just means the servant of Edom. And the servant of Edom receives a blessing. And you'll, you'll see that in this psalm, that where God is, there is a reception of blessing. But after that, of course, the Ark of the Covenant enters into Jerusalem, and David is there dancing and shouting in a, a linen ephod, celebrating before God as the Ark comes in. And as it, as it journeys in, the, the ark enters in, comes into the tent on, on Mount Zion, and the people eat. David spreads out uh, raisin fig cakes, and everybody, everybody lunches, and there's a celebration before God. This psalm can describe that kind of entrance. The ark of the covenant was, uh, was the footstool of God, so when it was, it was on occasion sent out to battle... And when the Israelites marched, the Ark of the Covenant would be lifted up. And so if you study the formation of the, all the articles in the tabernacle, you'll find that the location of the poles changes on each article. So you get this moving staircase as, as God marches with his people. And at the very top of it is the Ark of the Covenant with God's feet stepped upon it as he goes to war with his people. And so one setting for this psalm is the return then of God into his house, into the city of Jerusalem, into the tent on Mount Zion. And if you think about that context, we're going to read through the psalm and make some comments, and we're going to do this a couple times. So in that context, God returning to Jerusalem victorious with his people, King David there dancing before him, the earth is Yahweh's and all it contains. Well, consider that. If God has gone out with his people to make war, what is his right? The earth is his and its fullness thereof. Every nation belongs to God. And so when Yahweh marches on the nations, it's the ones that he made. Their fullness, every every grain in the field, every tree that's made belongs to him. And corresponding to that, you'll notice there's a, there's a structure in verses 1 and 2. The earth, the Eretz, is Yahweh's in its fullness. So you can think about the land there. And out of the land comes, comes the grain, the fruit trees, and all, all that grows from the earth. But there's a parallel statement, the world, the Tebel, and those who inhabit it. So parallel to the land and what grows out of it, we know all the way back from Genesis this is true. The whole world grows people, and so all of them together belong to God. All the stuff the earth grows and the people that grow out of it. And he founded it upon the seas. We already talked about that from Genesis. But he, he pulls up the land and the nations and he cleanses them. So you can think about an, another setting in which the earth is sinned and those in it. And God judges with, uh, with a flood. He cleanses it. And he raises up a new creation on that same earth. So he lifts the mountains up again. The earth again is Yahweh's in its fullness thereof. So he has the right to march in battle. And he will be victorious and bring his people back. And so then in verse 3, who may ascend? 
to the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, this one shall receive a blessing from Yahweh, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. So this central section, then we ask, okay, God is coming back. Who can come back? And think about Uzzah and the cart, and they don't have clean hands in the way that they've dealt with God. Who can come in? Well, God went into Obed-Edom's house, and he blessed him there, but he did not come back into his house in Jerusalem until there was clean hands and a pure heart. And we'll, we'll add more to this observation in just a bit. Till finally you, you hear the song, which is majestic, and it should be majestic in your eyes. That's why I recommended that, that, that version, because uh, the, the cry as you come up to the gates is, lift up your heads. The king of the earth, the one who owns it all, is coming back, and he's not just coming back in the same way that he left. He's coming back victorious, leading, leading a host of armies, leading those who are subservient to him. And so there's this question ringing as you, as you sing through it, who is this king of glory? In one sense, it's a question that's already known. It's Yahweh of hosts. It's Yahweh, strong and mighty, the one who's mighty in battle, who's coming back victorious before his people to dwell in the house with them. I want to go back to that central section. Who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. The question, the question we see there is one we know already. The, there's an implied answer in question again in verses 5 and 6. The one who fulfills this, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to vanity, who has not sworn deceitfully, he's going to receive a blessing from Yahweh, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him. So the answer, who is this? It's the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. So he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he can ascend. Who is it? It's those who have, it's the, those who seek Yahweh, who seek his face. And we have a, a description there. Your Bible may say who seek the God of Jacob, but there's, there's an ellipse. It doesn't say they seek the God of Jacob. It says they seek your face, and then there's just Jacob at the end. So I had Hyde read for us Genesis 28 this morning to remind us of why God would put that name Jacob in this text. Why is he reminding them about Jacob. Remember Hyde read for us then the story of Jacob as he's fleeing to the land of Padanaram. He stops in Bethel, the house of God, and God gives him a vision. And that vision uh, begins on the rock, which is his pillow. And there's a ladder reaching the heavens, and angels are ascending on de and descending on it. And God tells Jacob, I will bless you. And he reiterates then for him a very specific blessing. It's the same blessing that God gave Abraham. So when we think about the middle of this psalm, who, who is it? What does God want? 
The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive this blessing. Well, what blessing is it? It's the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The requirement is seek God. Those who seek God, who seek His face. Now, if you fast forward a few chapters in Jacob's life, you come to Genesis 32. And Jacob has gone to the land of Panaram, and God has indeed blessed him. He's grown him with children and flocks and herds, so he comes back both rich and with a giant family. God has kept his promise. Remember, he would make him a multitude of nations who would give him the land. And he's coming back into the land where God is fulfilling his blessing. And there, as he crosses the river Jabbok, he wrestles with God. And he wrestles him, and he won't let go. And if you remember, he says, I will not let go until you bless me. He wants the fullness of that blessing. He's wrestling with God. He's striving with him, hanging on, and he will not let go until God gives him the fullness of the blessing. There, he names that place Peniel, the face of God, because I have met with God face to face. I'm not dead. So he, he comes into the land, he goes to wrestle, wrestle God, he prevails, and he enters in. He enters into the land, and God blesses him. He blesses him with an, a brother who's no longer antagonistic, and he looks at Esau, and in Esau's face it says, I see your face as one sees the face of God. He sought God. Well, we're not going to talk about all of, all of Jacob's life, but that's what God is wanting us to think about. Are we seekers of God? The earth is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it, because he founded it upon the oceans, the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who can stand in his holy place in the day of judgment? Who can knock on the door of judgment and pass through? Remember, at every single door in the Bible, there is a station of judgment. So it was planted at the entrance to the Garden of Evil, Eden, not evil, Garden of Eden is the the angel with the flaming sword. It's God himself. Just like God met Jacob as he crossed the river Jabbok back into the land of his inheritance, he had to pass through. Who can do this? He has clean hands and a pure heart. He who is seeking the face of God. Only the one that, w- that would want to pass through a certain death sentence is one who's seeking f- God's face. If you want to go into his land, to ascend to his hill, You're passing through the angel with the flaming sword. Or in the case of the nation of Israel, as they want to enter into the promised land again, the captain of the Lord of hosts meets them with a drawn-out sword. Each time, you wouldn't enter unless you are seeking God. You're seeking the fullness of His blessing. All right. Sorry, we're going to keep going back and forth. I, I know that's a little confusing, but I, I, want, I want these multiple settings to resonate with us. So we're going to go through one more time, and fast-forwarding in history now, we think about Jesus. Remember, remember that these psalms are about Him. They're sung by Him, and Jesus would sing this song. Remember the sequence that we've been going through there on the second half of that chiasm, the, the, people, the people sing for their king, they cry for their king, and God answers. And they see their salvation built into 
they're indwelling with the king himself so that when the king comes in in Psalm 22, their salvation is bound up with his salvation and God answers. Sorry, Psalm 21, getting mixed up. And then in Psalm 22, remember there's a lament. Jesus on the cross, after, after there's been prayer, after the Garden of Gethsemane, when God answers, but his answer is you will still go to the cross. You'll enter through the angel with the flaming sword to enter into my presence. You'll die on behalf of your people. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the end of the psalm is prophetic. It looks forward to the, the fullness of the future that Jesus has bought, that he's redeemed at the cross, where he sets a table for his people. We move forward, and Jesus is now the good shepherd in Psalm 23 that we talked about last week. He brings his people through the wilderness just as God brought him through desolation and into life, into his heavenly place. And there at the end of Psalm 23, we have this promise of the psalmist, Surely I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And so Psalm 24 is the answer to that. How do we enter? What is the last stage of entering? You have to pass through the angel with the flaming sword. You have to pass through the gates where judgment is accomplished. All right, so Psalm 24, thinking of Jesus. The earth is Yahweh's in its fullness thereof. Of course, when we think of Jesus, he's singing this, he is Yahweh himself. He's, he bookends the psalm. The earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it, because he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend this hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity and has not sworn deceitfully, this one shall receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the one. We're going to now change it to the singular. This is the one in the midst of an adulterous and wicked generation who seeks him, who seeks your face. This is the true Jacob, the true Israel. Just as Jesus said, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. I am, I am the bread of life. He's the one who, who fulfills all that Israel was called to. And in Jesus, a blessing then is lifted up. He receives the fullness of the blessing to Abraham, and he includes it, includes us in it, so that we're coupled into God's blessing through Jesus. And finally, of course, we can see in verses 7 through 10 that this is talking about Jesus. And traditionally, this psalm is celebrated as the psalm of ascent. When Jesus rises up into the heavens, and there's a picture then of the gates of heaven opening up for Jesus himself to enter. It's a song then. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. It's a different setting in some sense because we're talking about the fullness of what God is doing. But in another, it's not any different. Jesus is mounting up to the heavens to ascend to his rightful spot at the right hand of the Father, and he's doing so as a victorious warrior. We're no longer thinking then about the Ark of the Covenant, but God himself came down into the world that he made, that he already owned, in order that he might ascend rightfully the hill of Yahweh to be appointed as the king over all creation by both right of creation and right of redemption. He enters in who is 
this king of glory, Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. So he's victorious. And then in the second, second part of, uh, uh, second uh, stanza there, lift up your heads, O gates. He says it again, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of armies. He is the king of glory, Selah. So as you think about Jesus entering into the heavenlies, he does not do it alone. And that's important to notice here. It's not just Yahweh, it's Yahweh of armies. And so behind Jesus, you should have then in your mind the picture of Revelation 19, where the Lamb has met his bride clothed in fine linen, and in a few verses later she's pictured again as an army behind him clothed in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the king of glory comes up to the house of God. He passes through the gates because he is the one who's clean, who's pure, who has not, who's not borne the name of God wrongfully or in vain. He's the one who has sought the face of God and has received the blessing, and behind him is his army. And together they enter in. This, uh, I do want to turn to one place. If, if, keep your finger in Psalm 24 and turn with me to Revelation 21. Description of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven. And in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, John says, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nation shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night, its gates shall never be closed." They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we have a corresponding picture. This is the same kind of picture. The gates are opened up, and in this one at the end, they're never closed. And the kings of the earth are streaming in and bringing with them their riches. And notice... In verse 27, there's three things that will not enter. There's nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination, and no lying. It's the same three components that we see. Clean hands, pure heart, a soul that's not lifted up to vanity. So there's no, there's no abomination. The one who bears the name of the Lord and yet does it in vain. And there's no deceit on his lips. Those shall not enter, but the kings of the earth coming in behind the king of glory shall come in with all the plunder of the nations. So this is, this is the full picture of Psalm 24. The nations coming in behind King Jesus. Now I want to give you one more setting, and from that we'll derive a, a handful of 
applications. This psalm spans history. It spans all of the great and grand uh, promises of God and bringing us into His house to reside with Him. We reenact it every week. Even the Jews uh, in the Talmud, they have marked this psalm as to be sung on the first day of the week. This, this is an entry psalm coming into God's house. And so when we stand and we, we are called into worship, it's with a song like this. God calls us to come in, to follow in after, after our King Jesus, to walk in having clean hands and a pure heart. We know, of course, that the only way we can do that is beginning with confession, receiving forgiveness from our Savior, and then entering fully into His presence. Now, what I want you to consider as we do that, we're moving then through these same sections, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof, because he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He's called his people up, out, out of the sea, out of the river. He's established a land for us. He baptized us. He moved us into his space. He makes us clean, and then he calls us to follow our Savior. So in thinking about this psalm, we should consider the fact that we are the host that follows Jesus. But we are present in a second place in the psalm then. We're present as the gates. And that's what I want, I want us to think about. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. Throughout the Bible, the gate is the place where judgment takes place. The elders stand at the gate. They judge those who are entering, and they either allow or deny entrance into the city. And they may kick you out. They may judge, they might judge the death penalty at the gate. But the elders stand at the gate, and they shut the doors if you're not allowed to enter. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the gate. On the gate of heaven by which the ladder and Jacob extends up to the heaven of heavens. I'm the one who judges entrance, who judges whether you meet the requirements to enter in. But then he adds us, he gives us the privilege of being gates, doors. Remember Matthew, he says, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. You now stand at the gate. This says the elders of, of old... The church now protects her gates under the leadership of King Jesus. And so, one more time we can think about this picture, but now it's a picture that, that acts again and again every week, which God's house, we ascend to God's house. And we come in and, and every week as we go out from here, Jesus leads us into battle. He takes us as the good shepherd. He, he leads us along the way. He sets a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And then he brings back with him his conquest, the hosts. And so we're both the gates that are called to be lifted up because God is coming in every Sunday. And we're those following behind him. Next week, we're going to uh, formally add some of the members that, that have signed the, the church covenant. And it's, in some sense, a drama, a little miniature drama of this same idea in which we, the church, are called unto God. We're the gates. And we open up and God, 
Jesus comes bringing in a host. This is what we see when somebody comes to Christ. We receive them not because, not because they were perfectly clean before, before, but because Jesus has conquered them. They're brought in as the host behind him, and we who are here in the church are standing at the doors, and the command is, lift up your heads. Be lifted up. Why? Not, not because any one individual is coming in, but because they're being led by the King of glory. So when we look at one another, and we're called into communion with one another, God calls us to look at each other and to see that Jesus has brought us together. The King of glory goes out, he conquers. And just like the, the Roman Empire, they, they go out and they conquer, and, and who got added into the army? The conquered. They're brought in as the host. They're converted into, into Romans. You see this later on in Roman history. But this is what Jesus does. They're not just conquered. They're added into the heavenly host, become part of the bride, and he brings them back into his city, and we stand up because the king of glory is coming in, leading his heavenly host. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up. Oh, ancient, that word ancient can be both looking backwards, ancient, and looking forwards, future, everlasting doors. So from, from the beginning until the, the end, from the young and the old that God called in Psalm 22 that he promised would be part of his house. Remember, the, those who are going down to death, they'll eat and be satisfied. Those who are, are not yet born, they'll, they'll be called into his kingdom. They will be seekers of God, and they'll be brought in behind this king, this glorious king who's gone to the cross, who's been raised up, who's ascended on high, and he brings us into the presence of God. So what do we, what do we make of this? One part of the application is, is what I just said. When we come together, we're brought by Jesus We accept or we deny only based on him. If he's leading in the host, it's his earth, it's his fullness and the inhabitants thereof. He brings us into his presence. So that's, that's the application of the doors. Lift yourselves up, receive Christ and all those who are his. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Judge rightly who are the people of God, who may ascend, those with clean hands and pure hearts. The only ones with clean hands and pure hearts are those who have been united to Christ. Those who seek him as Abraham sought a city, an architect whose builder was God. Those who set their face to seek the face of the God of Jacob. Jesus cleanses. Now look one more time then at verse 3. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. There's four requirements there. Clean hands, a pure heart, so there's the outside, there's the inside, and then that's reflected again. It was not lifted up his soul to vanity, that's the heart, and then on the outside has not sworn deceitfully. So both externally and internally are made clean. In this city there shall be no uncleanness, no abomination, no lying. We as mankind cannot judge these things. 
We can't see into the heart. And so we rely on our King Jesus to bring the host. Now there's a second set of applications that I've been talking about in verses 5 and 6. We come to receive a blessing. In verse 5 it says, the one, who, the one who ascends, the one who comes into God's house, will receive a blessing from Yahweh. That word receive is the same Hebrew word that later in the psalm is translated lift up. He doesn't lift up his soul to vanity. You do lift up your heads to Christ the King knocking on the door. He shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh. We come into God's house and Jesus has purchased the blessing for us, but in him we receive it. And so by faith, we take a hold of what God has given. We do this every week. We're looking forward to the full blessing, the fullness of all that God has promised, but along the way he calls us into his presence. And it's, it's, not, it's not just in symbol, it is reality. God calls us to be with him. Jesus walks in our midst, and those who seek him, those who seek his face, those who are, wrestle with God and come into his presence will receive blessing from Yahweh. So we worship. We come before him to worship through the person of Christ, following our Savior, the victorious warrior. He enters on ahead of us. The doors open up, and this is God's promise to us today. We come into his presence to lift up a blessing from Yahweh. We come to eat at a table. What's behind the doors is a meal set. Remember what, what uh, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. They're, they're, they're hot and cold, and he says, I'm knocking at the door. Whoever will open it, I'll come in and dine with him. Behind the door, which Psalm 24 doesn't talk about, it opens up and we come to eat in God's presence. Paul describes this as a cup of blessing. As a partaking of the bread, we become sharers in Christ. And so behind the door, we enter in, and this drama we're playing out, but it's, it's both symbol and it's reality. God blesses us. He really blesses us here in His presence. He calls us to eat with Him, and by faith, we take a hold of what seems small, and God lifts us up. He calls us to be like, like the true Jacob, Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about, uh, in a, a little bit more depth, the one New Testament quotation of this psalm, the earth is Yahweh's and its fullness thereof. It's quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians in, uh, in chapter 10. Entering into God's presence and dining with him, there in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we eat and we're blessed. And he quotes this in the context of you cannot share the table of demons and the table of the Lord. There is separation. You must have clean hands and a pure heart. You must not lift up your soul to vanity or swear deceitfully. There's this separation then between the table of Yahweh and the table of demons. But that separation is not, it's not about what God has made. It's about how by faith we partake of it. And so he quotes this then, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. We come in and we eat, and we're going to eat of bread and wine that's just normal. 
but it's by God, and we take it by faith. And in so doing, God chooses to bless us. Believe this. One more passage I want to turn to. So James, James chapter 4. God calls us to enter by faith, and that's what we've done this morning. He calls us to ascend to his holy hill with a standard that is, in one sense, impossible. If you remember back to a year ago, we studied this passage in James 4, and he talks about these same two elements. We come in, and we come in with unclean hands and impure hearts. He says, submit, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So at the door, we set aside every sin, every encumbrance. We repent, we're forgiven, and Jesus lifts us up, and this is his command. We come in having cleansed our hands, purified our hearts, and setting aside, set aside every two-mindedness about us, every second thought, every impure thought that, that seeks for anything but what God is calling us to, and we grasp a hold of the promises of God. And this is His promise to us. If we draw near to Him, if we do this in faith, entering into His presence, week by week, He will draw near to us. He will bring this reenactment, which we do every week. We come and we eat the supper in His presence, looking forward to what's real, the fullness of that supper. And in so doing, we're bringing it near. We're calling on God, and in faith, He acts. So if you would, stand up. And let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that our Savior Jesus has gone on ahead of us. We thank you that he has fulfilled the story of the true Jacob. We thank you that the earth is his, it's yours, all of its fullness, we belong to you. We thank you that he ascended at the cross and he did so with clean hands and a pure heart. He bore your name without vanity, he did not turn back. He had no deceit upon his lips, even though all around him were jeering and mocking and seeking to consume him. And yet in so doing, he rescued us. We thank you that you have bought us, that you've called us, and that you've brought us today into your presence. Lord, help us to lift up our heads to see that Jesus, our Savior, is here among us. He is the King of glory, the one that was long awaited. He is Yahweh of hosts, the one who's mighty and victorious, who who goes out and leads us, leads us in. We thank you for the mysterious, deep 
love of our Savior. We thank you that you were not satisfied to sit and rest in your house, but instead you pursued a people, and you have brought us today. Lord, it's our prayer that in so doing as you speak to us and that as you feed us, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on the Savior, to look forward to the full and confident expectation that we have in him of abiding in your presence forever. Help us to grasp a hold of this, to live it out amongst one another, because you call us in faith to live with each other, to work out our salvation in, in this midst. Lord, we pray that you would, you would bring this to fruition, and we thank you for the blessing that you bring to us today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.